You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Continue our studies in Genesis 1 through 3, and this evening we are reading from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through to the end of the chapter. And uh, as you've heard, the theme for the message this evening is God's blueprint for marriage. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, and you'll notice this is actually the first time Adam says anything in the book of Genesis, and it is the sight of his wife-to-be that makes him break into what actually in Hebrew, which Genesis is written in, is set as poetry. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Well, in the past couple of messages, we've been trying to understand the relationship, in part, between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And uh, I've suggested that Genesis chapter 1 gives us the heavenly perspective on creation, and in a sense, the camera now comes right down in Genesis chapter 2 and gives us the earthly perspective on creation. These two chapters tell the same story, but from different points of view. In Genesis chapter 1, you might say from the perspective of eternity. This is all about God and how He is bringing His creation into being. And then the perspective that actually begins, as we saw last time in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, actually is the beginning of what we would call history. Chapter 1 we might call prehistory. It brings us to the apex of God's creation, which is the creation of the man and the woman as his image 
And then chapter 2 begins there and focuses down there. And actually, as we see here this evening, fills in some of the things that were left out in chapter 1. The heavenly, big-picture view doesn't give us the details. We're told that God made the man and the woman as His image, and we're told that they were to have dominion, but we're not given the local details of exactly why did He create them as man and woman, as male and female. And this passage this evening, as you would sense, fills in the details. Remarkable thing about the creation of the man and the woman in chapter 1 is the astonishment that it would have caused to those who first heard it. The only person who was ever thought or described as a son and image of God in the ancient Near East was the king. So there was only one person in the nation ever described as the son and the image of his God. And that one person was without exception always exclusively male. So being the image of God belongs to the king and it belongs exclusively to the male of the species. And so there is a revolutionary statement made in Genesis 1, 26, when the living and true God says that all men and women will be made as His image. All men and women will be His royal children. I wonder if you remember the genealogy of Jesus that we've got in Luke chapter 3, just before uh, His baptism that long list of names that begins with Jesus and then takes you all the way down through the history of Israel back to Genesis chapter 1. And it says that Jesus is descended according to his human nature, ultimately from Adam, who was the Son of God. So here, the eternal trinity, if we can put it this way, in whom there is one known as the Son, decides that they are going to create a world beyond themselves in which every man and every woman may be both the image of God and a child of God. But then the way in which Genesis chapter 2 fills that in when it looks at the creation of the man and the woman under the microscope, uh, we're very much looking at this from the earthly point of view. It's not God speaking, let us make man as our image. It's God putting his face down into the dust and the mud and fashioning a man, getting his hands dirty, as it were, in the creation and then kissing the clay into life. It is, it's, not just a, it's not just an earthly view, it's almost, isn't it, a worm's eye view. And uh, there were worms, presumably, in the clay, who would be able, as it were, to sense, this is, 
this is the, the, the literary description of something exquisitely intimate. God, as it were, doesn't get his hands or face dirty in the creation of anything else. But for this creature, whom he's making as his image, as his likeness, as his own child, he is bringing this child from the womb of the earth, and his hands, as it were, are joyfully dirty in the process. And now chapter 2 goes on to explain to us, so why did he not just make a man and then another man, and then another man, and another man. It's presumably not beyond God's wit to have created a creature that would reproduce itself without the need for another. So there's something of enormous significance going on in what Genesis 2 goes on to tell us about the creation of the man and the woman. I wonder if you remember how Jesus taught people to think. When questions were raised, for example, about marriage to Jesus, how did Jesus think? Well, the way Jesus thought was to say, you need to go back to first principles. You need to go back and ask the question, what did God mean things to be in the beginning? And that's the value of this passage this evening. Live in a world where people actually have no context for marriage. No context whatsoever. We live in a world, as uh, we, we often hear in our church, we live in a world where Someone, as it were, has pulled the thread from the sweater of society, the thread of the gospel that actually wove the society in which we live. And as that, as that society has that thread pulled out of it, it doesn't understand this. But the whole garment collapses. Because what has created our society and its stability in the Western world, in our own country, actually has been the gospel. People hate to hear you say that, but actually it's true. And so they just assume we'll get rid of this gospel and then we'll go back to normality without realizing everything we experience as normal was actually put into our society by the gospel. So it shouldn't surprise us that where the gospel is demeaned, where God's word is despised, where Christ is ignored, then the foundations under everything shape. It's the least surprising thing in all the world that hand in hand with the rejection of the gospel should go the dysfunctionality of marriage and the desire among many either to ignore marriage, abandon marriage, or destroy marriage. Why? Because they have no context for marriage. And context is everything. Dorothy and I were uh, somewhere during the course of this week, and we overheard a lady say 
Give me a lion, a tiger, a sheep, and a pig. Give me a lion, a tiger, a sheep, and a pig. Where were we? Edinburgh Zoo? Was this the purchaser of the London Zoo in Edinburgh Zoo? Lion, a tiger, a sheep, and a pig? You have no way of knowing what that lion, tiger, sheep, and pig were until I tell you we were in the Brown Sugar Cafe in the main street in Ballater. And the woman was asking for chocolate candies in the shape of the lion, the tiger, the sheep, and the pig. It's a very trivial illustration, isn't it? Context is absolutely vital. Now, this is the context for marriage. And once you remove that context for marriage, then of course you're all at sea. It's logical that you should be all at sea. Why? Because all you've got is this human stuff that looks like a man and this human stuff that looks like a woman. And why should you do anything except you have these instincts to do something? But why should you do any more than that something? All you're left with is your instincts, and uh, the most foolish of us understands that our instincts are no good guide to the way we should live. And then all you are left with is government creating laws, isn't it? When you take away the context of the gospel for life, what, is, what happens in a society where the gospel doesn't create understanding the government ends up having to make laws and more laws and more laws and more laws and to invent a way of helping people to function when we've no idea what we're here for or where we came from or what marriage is about. And this is just one slice of the pie where extraordinarily these first two chapters of Genesis are probably among the most despised chapters in the Bible. You don't believe the first chapters of Genesis. The end of the day, they're the only thing that makes meaning and significance and gives context to something as absolutely basic in our society as marriage. So let's listen to Jesus. What was it like in the beginning? What did he make marriage for in the beginning? Well, let me draw out four points of significance in this passage that become very significant in the rest of the Bible's teaching on what it means to think about being married, want to be married, prepare to be married, be married restore marriage, help somebody else with their marriage? What is God's design? Why did he not just make a man and a man? Or for that matter, a woman and a woman? Why did he make them male and female? Well, here's the first and the most obvious thing. God's design for marriage is it's designed to provide companionship. If you've ever been at an Anglican wedding and a Presbyterian wedding in quick succession, 
you would notice a difference in the service. Well, you'd notice many differences in the service. But one of the differences you would notice would be when it comes to the point where the minister explains what this is for. In the Anglican church, the first thing it's for is the procreation of children. If you go to a Presbyterian wedding, you'll be told the first thing this is for is the mutual help and comfort, encouragement, strengthening that husband and wife should have of each other. And of course, I'm prejudiced, but I think the Presbyterians got the Bible order right, didn't they? The first thing marriage is for is not the basic necessity of the continuation of the race. And this comes out beautifully here, doesn't it? Um, you, sh- you need to read Genesis 1 out loud to yourself. Turn on the shower, but don't get into the shower. So people think you're in the shower. And then, if that's the only private room in the house, read Genesis 1 out to yourself. And you get this uh, rhythm going through Genesis 1 into Genesis 2. God made it and it was good. God made it and it was good. God made it and it was good. Seven times God made it and it was good and it was very good. And then out of the blue, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make her, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, if I was writing this, I would immediately move from that statement in verse 18 to the next statement in verse 21. I would just miss out 19 and 20. Cut to the chase. So, why do all this stuff about all these animals? God makes these animals out of the ground. Isn't that interesting? Makes these animals out of the same stuff he'd made Adam out of. So, there's shared stuff here. And he, and he brings them along. What's, what is God doing? God is awakening in Adam his sense of aloneness by comparison with all these other creatures. And the whole story slows down from a literary point of view. It, it's, it's really very brilliant. We, we anticipate something's going to happen, but what God does, he, he brings these animals along. Wish I knew what they were. Maybe one of them was the dog. Here's the dog coming along. Ah, says Adam, this must have been fun. Dog. And whatever he named the animals, that was the animal's name. Giraffe. And they all come along and pass him by. And it begins to dawn on Adam as he watches these animals because these animals are made male and female. They have companions. He, he looks at them and then he looks at himself. He, maybe he looks at himself in the, in the river that runs through the garden. And he realizes, they're not like me. I'm alone here. And God awakens something in him. God awakens him to this sense that 
presumably he's scarcely able to put into words because everything around him is good, but there's something missing. And so God makes this woman in order that she might be, first of all, his companion. Actually, the the language that Genesis uses here with, uh, I shouldn't really say with apologies to the ladies who are present, but God built a woman for him. God built a woman. And I guess that's more an architectural kind of phrase, isn't it? God designed and built a woman for him. Now, this is the blueprint for marriage. I think it's legitimate to draw out of this that if this is true for the first man, why should it not be true thereafter for every Christian man and every Christian woman to have this understanding that God is in the process, in the marvelous way in which He overrules providence of building people for one another. And we're told she's suited to him. I will, I will build a helper who is suited to him. The language here is very unusual. It means somebody who is like him and yet stands over against him. It's this sense of, of, uh, of discovering in somebody else who you are yourself. It's this sense of discovering in that other person. And of course, this works both ways. Discovering in that other person. I think this other person was built for me, and I think I have been built for this other person. We, I mean, even people who aren't Christians use this kind of language. We suit each other. We, it's not that we're Lego bricks, but we clicked with each other almost as though we had been made for each other. And he does this in order that they may be companions together. That actually is the most important thing in marriage, isn't it? Companionship. Uh, Friendship. Just being together. Don't you think it's one of the most amazing and tragic things in the world that people, man and a woman, will stand at the front of a church and pledge undying love to one another, and ten years later they can't bear to be in the same room together? What's gone wrong? Usually they haven't worked on the fact that marriage is for companionship, that we're meant to inhabit the same space together. We'll come to that in a minute. So this is the first thing. God has designed marriage for companionship. Um, There's huge wisdom in knowing that, isn't there? If you're not married, there is huge wisdom in knowing that. That is actually what it's about. Uh, Whatever all the other stuff may be, yesterday's times had a Uh, a magazine section on like the 40 men women want to have. You don't want to have. You want to have somebody that you can actually live in the same space with, who's going to be your lifelong companion. That's That's the beautiful thing about it. God has made men and women for that kind of companionship. 
That's why, actually, when Paul speaks about the relationship between the man and the woman in marriage in Ephesians chapter 3, he says a very interesting thing. He says, now, men, you have the hard part of the biblical command. You have to love your wife the same way Jesus loved his church. The command that's given to the woman actually seems tame by comparison with that. He turns to wives and he says, women, make sure that you respect your husband. Think well. And yet that's uh, that's what this is about. You can't have real companionship with somebody you don't actually respect. And uh, there's a word there for us if uh, we're thinking about marriage. How, how many women would have been preserved from disastrous unions if somebody had come along to them and said, I can give you the one simple test by which you should decide whether you're going to marry this man or not. Do you really respect him? You may say, I'll change him. And you say, you won't respect him by changing him. Do you really respect him? Because you're not going to enjoy lifelong companionship with a man that in your heart of hearts you know, I don't really respect him. So companionship. The second thing is this that marriage was designed in order to encourage spiritual development, both in verse 18 and again in verse 20. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Not notice I'll make a woman suitable for him, I'll make a helper suitable for him. And then later on, it's exactly the same thing. For Adam, all these animals, for Adam there was no suitable helper found. Now, a dog can be a man's best friend in a miniature sense, but actually, at the end of the day, they're not much help. But in what sense a helper? Well, here's the fascinating thing about this word. This is not a me Tarzan, her Jane, you know, me mighty man, her little helper. The language of helper is used in the Old Testament most frequently of the Lord himself. This is Psalm 121 language. Where is my help going to come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So this has got nothing whatsoever to do with crazy ideas about the woman's inferiority. It's actually got everything to do with the man's insufficiency on his own. And God wants to provide a helper for him in order that he may develop, that he may grow. Which actually is another great question to ask, isn't it? Is this man or woman really going to be a helper to me, help me to grow in obedience to and love for the Lord Jesus Christ? I remember a friend I had who died as a relatively young man, and I was given his papers and his journal by his wife, and I noticed that as their relationship was beginning to blossom, he had written into his journal, I came to see 
that I could be far more for the Lord together with her than I could ever be on my own. And that's what this marriage is intended to be. Here is Adam and he he needs help. He, He needs someone who will encourage him and exhort him to serve the Lord just as he similarly will in this instance pass on the word of God to this woman so that together they may walk hand in hand in the Garden of Eden sharing fellowship with the Lord. Because of course the vital thing about marriage is there always needs to be three people in a marriage. Remember Princess Diana in that interview was a Dimbleby interview? saying the real problem was there were three people in this marriage, and that's one too many. No, that wasn't really the problem. The real problem was this. The third person was the wrong person. And you see, if we're really going to be helpers, what are we going to be? We're we're going to be those who will be the hands and feet to one another of the Lord Jesus in our relationships so that we can grow to the kind of spiritual maturity that the Lord purposes for us. It's interesting and it's, uh, I think, not insignificant when you realize that the first thing Satan actually attacks in Genesis chapter 3 is marriage, isn't it? It's not insignificant that in the Scriptures he is known as the hinderer and the woman is known as the helper. So there is companionship, there's spiritual development. The third thing to say is this, that in God's design, Marriage is designed to be built on mutual commitment. Mutual commitment. That's actually evident in the words that uh, Adam speaks, his first words. It's really rather marvelous. The first words he speaks about which we know. All he had said was dog, cat, giraffe, elephant, hippopotamus, and so on. But now he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Of course, from one point of view, that was true literally. But actually, the interesting thing about this language is it's language used in the rest of Scripture, not just of a physical relationship, but of a covenant commitment. Remember when the tribes of Israel come to David in order to make David king, they say to him, we are We are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. And and by that, they're not just saying, hey, we're all family here. I mean, the mafia's family here. They're saying, we're absolutely committed to you, David. And this is what begins to emerge here in Genesis chapter 2. These first words are actually words of covenant commitment. You're the person God has given to me, and so I bind myself to you. And it becomes even more evident in the commentary on this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. There is, in the old language, the leaving and the cleaving, isn't there? And both of them are significant. The leaving in the marriages in the 
in the Bible isn't, it's, it's not a geographical leaving of any particular significance. They lived in villages and little towns. Even a major city was, was far, far smaller than, than Dundee. You didn't go anywhere. So the leaving and the sticking fast, these are not so much to do with geography as they have to do with the commitment to a new family that is being brought into being. You know, it's become the fashion. It wasn't the fashion 60 years ago. It's become the fashion now when youngsters get married that they, they have premarital counseling. And sometimes, you know, when I listen to youngsters when I'm doing the premarital counseling, I think, you know, it's not these youngsters that need the premarital counseling. It's the potential in-laws that need the premarital counseling. Because they're clearly not willing to let these kids go. I, I regularly have said to a, a man and a woman who have come and they're going to discuss their wedding, I, I've said, as, as soon as you can get it out of your head that this is your wedding, the happier you're likely to be on your wedding day. Just let them do what they want. Of course, if you want godliness, there may be lines that you need to draw in certain families. But let the stuff go. The most significant thing for you too is that you are both leaving these two families. So that there's a certain tone of voice that would never be used in the marriage relationship. And it would be this. But in my family, you see, to which, if you say it to a husband or a wife, in the worst of situations, you might be tempted to say, but this isn't my family. This is our family. And we are on this amazing adventure. And one of the parts of that adventure is the fact that you leave your family. You are no longer in that authority structure. And at the same time, the scriptural command remains true. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long on the land that the Lord your God gives to you and the, the challenges of balancing both of these things can be very real in some family situations, but they are never solved by us forgetting this. This is, this is actually what marriage is. This is leaving and cleaving. This again is covenant language. This is the language that's used of entering into a covenant bond with the Lord in which you leave all previous gods and hold yourself unreservedly to this God. So these are the things that are so important for this marriage. And of course it leads to the end of the passage in these strange words in verse 25 that actually don't make full sense until we read about how ashamed they were when they saw that they were naked in chapter 3, that the marriage that is given to us 
is a marriage that's given to us for very special intimacy. Christian marriage is the beginnings of the restoration of this, this sense that's communicated in these words of the, of the total transparency of these two people in one another's presence. You know, one of the fascinating things in our time, I suppose, because of all we see in the media, how, how marvelous it must be to be one of those people who were on the red carpet the other day. All the glamour, how marvelous life is, how much they love one another. Life is absolutely wonderful. Underneath it all, they're utterly miserable. Otherwise, they wouldn't be engaged in serial relationships. There's duplicity, there's cheating, there's lust. And the one thing there isn't is simple transparency, where two people have a sense that God has made them for one another. And because they're committed to the Lord, they bind themselves to one another. And in that binding, they find a, they find a knowledge of each other that actually is endless. Um, I'm sometimes amused listening to, uh, it's, it's always, in my experience, it's always men who seem to think this. Maybe it says something about men. You know, there's never been a man in the history of the universe who has loved a woman the way I love this woman. This is not just the marriage of the year or the decade or the century. My marriage is going to be the marriage of all history. Nobody has ever loved a woman like the way I love this woman. And I don't usually say it, but I always think it. I hope you come back in five years' time and say to me, I was a total idiot five years ago when I said that. I knew absolutely nothing. But now I've got five years of the sheer adventure of discovering more and more reasons why I love this woman. And here's the paradox. Here is the paradox. As there seem to be less reasons physically in the marriage that is there basically for companionship, there are tens of thousands more reasons why you love this person. And even when you love this person, you know, how men often say women are very mysterious. There's no end to the mystery. You're always discovering something. Something happens that causes, oh, this is why we were built for each other. This is what I see of God's grace and love and power that calls me on to serve him better. This is the person who stands over against me. So that, and of course this sometimes can cause the little tensions, can't it? So that this other person is like a mirror held in front of me in which in discovering who they are, I'm discovering who I am and some of the things I discover about myself in living with the other person. It can bring to the the surface of one's mind, one's sins, failures, selfishness, foolishness, blindness. 
But uh, the marvelous thing is this, that in Christ it's safe to discover that neither of you is yet what one day you shall be in Christ. Because the, the ultimate reality, I think, of the resurrection body is this, that what has been inside will actually be outside. We had a hint of that this morning. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I think one of the delights of eternity will be bumping into Christians that you knew, but not particularly intimately, and looking at them and saying to them, oh, now I see who you really were, when the inside is outside. But you see, until that day, there is one special relationship God has created in which the inside and the outside get awfully near to one another. And sometimes the inside is unpleasant. But this is a relationship in which you're being helped. And so you're helped to bring it to the Lord and confess it, to be refreshed and to be strengthened to live again for His glory. This is the design for marriage. It's not God's design for everyone. It wasn't his design for the Lord Jesus, was it? There are people to whom he, however challenging it is, gives the gift of living a single life in order that they may be free for his glory. But uh, this, in a sense, you could say, is how he expects most of us to live. Pretty mundane in the Garden of Eden, don't you think? You know? Not flush in the bank balance. Got to do something to get the food. It's very ordinary life. But you see, when ordinary life is viewed through the lenses of Scripture, then the marriage of a man and a woman has a kind of royal flavor about it, doesn't it? And that's why this, of course, is the most frequently used illustration of the gospel relationship in which people should be able to look, as I believe increasingly they will be able to look at real Christian marriages and say, what is it makes those two tick that somehow or another they seem to have got it right. And their family, it's different from ours. And they might come to you and say, we've been watching you in the street here, we've been watching you at the school gate, we've, we've seen your family on, on social occasions. You mind telling us which of the parts of water stones we need to go to, to find the book that you have obviously used to have a marriage like this and a home like this. 
And you're going to be forced to say, well, I think they just sell the King James Version, but I'll give you a new international version if you want, because this is God's blueprint. And while we struggle, while we remain sinners, God is gracious, and we taste just a little taste of Eden in our married life together. Some very practical counsel here, isn't there? Some of you, some of you young women being courted, it's a very simple question. And it's a very simple end to maybe a very simple, very simple thing to say to some young man who presses you. I'm really sorry. But I can't respect you. And if he were to say, what's respect got to do with it? A very simple answer, isn't it? It's got absolutely everything to do with it. Because I could only respect a man who wanted me to love Christ more than I love him. And similarly with those of us who are men, what a challenge to be such a man, incidentally, that a young woman would respect and to whom she would give her life as a helper. Well, may we be refreshed in this and blessed. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your mercy you have you have given us companionship because you yourself, with your Son and with your Spirit, have had companionship that has lasted from all eternity. We can almost imagine you turning to your Son and to the Holy Spirit and saying, this is so good. Let's create a man and a woman that they and those who are their offspring may get a taste of the blessedness that we enjoy. So, Lord, help those of us who are married to aspire to follow after your word. Help those of us who long to be married and are not yet and fear perhaps that we never will be. Help us to see the special challenge that you have given to us and to know that Christ is the husband of the husbandless, the friend of the lonely. And those of us who are wrestling with questions of marriage and aspirations and longings, we pray you would help us to trust you and to know that even like Adam, when we are asleep, you have not stopped working. So we commit all this to you and thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. 
Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.